Thank you for downloading this podcast from Awakening Church. I want to talk about uh, uh, four things that are really important. And I wanted to, I really wanted to get this in last week. Um, because sometimes when we when we are studying Old Testament passages, um, it's really really important for us to understand that everything in the Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus and the kingdom, right? It's always pointing to it's it's what's called Christocentric, so it's always pointing to Him, and and so one of the things that I love is the connection between the two. Uh, prime example, uh, we just touched on it briefly last week, but we were talking about the dream that Jacob had, right? Uh, the, the dream that he has at Bethel and uh, he sees a ladder and angels are ascending and descending, right? So Jesus is talking in the New Testament and he says, I am the ladder and you're going to see, uh, you know, angels ascending and descending. And um, so, so it's always pointing to the New Testament. So I want to, I want to share uh, several things. I really want you guys to, to, to lock in today because I, I don't think we'll be very long, but what, what I feel like the Lord wants to say to us is, is um, very, very powerful. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four pillars of kingdom culture. And, and I want to say this. These are not original to me. Okay, these are not original to me. Um, I find in the New Testament, Paul was very adamant. He said, I want you to imitate me when he was writing to church. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? How many of you are really confident to go up to people and tell them to imitate your walk? That's a whole other sermon right there, right? We, we, we ain't going to talk about that when we're going. <laughs> but that's what Paul says. And so there are people who are doing kingdom and have been doing kingdom and revival much longer and much wiser than, than we have. And so I, I feel like it's important for us to learn from them. And um, one of the most prominent voices that I know of right now that's doing that is Bill Johnson out in Redding, California. And, and so um, many of you... Many of you, we've given this book, uh, God is Good, that he wrote. Many of you have that. And um, so I, I'm, some of that comes from, from some of what I'm going to say comes from there. And some of it just comes from the way that they, uh, the way that they do life in revival, okay? So I'm going to give you four pillars to what kingdom culture actually looks like. And I want, you to, I want you to remember what we talked about last week, generational, and I want you to think about what we talk about this week because we're going to talk about Jacob again, okay? So four pillars to kingdom culture. This is really good for taking notes on your phone or whatever you want to do. Um, so number one, God is good must be the cornerstone of all your theology. God is good must be the cornerstone of all your theology, and if I truly believe that God is good, then I must dream big because my faith will only explore where I think God is good. Right? God is good regardless of the circumstance. That has to be a cornerstone of our theology. And if I believe that he's good, then I've got to dream big because my faith is only going to explore where I think he's good. Let's all stand and I'll close right now. Right? Number two, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. And if I truly believe that nothing is impossible, then I will look for impossibilities. Number three, Jesus' blood paid for everything. And if I truly believe that the blood of Jesus really paid for everything, 
then I owe him trust when things don't work out like I think they should or if they look out of control. Yeah. Number four, I, what are we doing? Oh, (laughs) my bad, my bad. Where are we at? Daniel, can you, can you type this up and go back and forth with me real quick? (laughs) Number one, God is good. It's the cornerstone of all theology. Number two, nothing is impossible. Number three, Jesus' blood paid for everything. Are we there? Number four, I, you, we are significant. If I truly believe that I'm significant, I will serve well. If I truly believe that I am significant, I will serve well. So number one, God is good is the cornerstone of all theology. Number two, nothing is impossible. Number three, Jesus' blood paid for everything. Number four, I, you, we are significant. I really believe that these are... These are foundational. And you have to understand, when Jesus came preaching a message like this, there had been silence for 400 years. We, you know, sometimes we don't necessarily think in those lines. You know, Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to build the church on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Right? And we're like, oh, Yes. Because I just got out of Jeremiah, and I just got out of Isaiah, and I just got out of Micah, and and all of the prophets, and man, that's so good. Of course you're going to do that. And we're going to build it on the apostles, because I just read about Paul, and I just read about uh, Peter, and all of that stuff. But for 400 years, there was nothing, and people were even questioning the prophetic in Jesus' time. See, we don't, we don't think about stuff like that. We grab this, this book that is alive and it's amazing and we read it and we don't realize that he was literally blazing a trail that they had, many of them had never heard of, 400 years. So a generation is about 40 years is what they say. So well, you could say for 10 generations, they had no idea what the prophetic was. They had no idea. And Jesus comes and says, that thing that, and see, here's the thing. They rejected it because they thought it was new, but it really wasn't new. It was original intent, right? Yeah, I'm not preaching about that today. I don't know why I went there. But anyway, um, it's really, really important for us to understand the interweaving of the New Testament and the Old Testament and what the Lord was trying to say and what he was saying and what he's saying to us. And so it, it's, it's very important for under, us to understand these uh, pillars that, that really set a foundation for us for what the kingdom looks like because that message that Jesus was preaching, although it wasn't brand new, it was radical and brand new to them. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to stay in Genesis for a little while. Uh, I'm going to go first to Genesis 25, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to read just yet. I, I have a couple of things I want to <clears throat> I want to ask you about and talk to you about. Um, okay, 
the Lord comes to Abraham, tells him, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have a son. He, he doesn't have any children at all. He's old. He, he, you know, how is this going to work? He tells Sarah the same thing, and she actually laughs at him. She laughs at the Lord. And uh, so, so that, that is uh, an interesting story in and of itself. Abraham finally has a son. Then the Lord says, hey, I want you to go sacrifice him, right? We see the, the pointing. He's willing to sacrifice his son, pointing to the sacrifice Jesus would make, all, all of these things that we're talking about. So Isaac is raised in a home where he knows what the promise of the Lord is to his family, right? We know that that's true. We know that it's so true that even Ishmael, when Abraham puts Ishmael out, we know that Ishmael begins to pray to the father of Abraham, and he is asking that he would, uh, that, that he would comfort him and his mother, okay? So we understand that things are happening in the house of Abraham. So I want to ask you this question today. How many times do you think that Isaac heard the story of God speaking to Abraham and telling him that he would be the father of a nation and that the descendants would be innumerable? How many times do you think he had to listen to that story? How many times do you think that they walked through it at the dinner table? This amazing experience that Abraham has in covenant when he walks between the animal that he had sacrificed and God comes and meets him and he, he talks to him and he says, Isaac, man, listen, he told me to leave my family, my country, and I really didn't even know where I was going, but here we went. And then he said, I was going to have a kid and I was a hundred years old. How many times do you think that he really had to hear that. I'm, I'm going to tell you this. It was so known that that was the word of the Lord to Abraham that when Abraham sends his servant to go and get Rebecca to be Isaac's wife, right? He doesn't give the word that the Lord had given to Abraham, but her family, Laban and her mother, as she's leaving... They look at Rebecca and they say, go, sister, and become the mother of thousands, of tens of thousands. The story was very well known. It was very well known. Let me ask you another question. What do you think Isaac's thought was about Ishmael? He had to know the story. He had to know that we don't have the same baby mama. He, he, he had to know, well, why is he gone? Because he was making fun of you one day, and Sarah couldn't handle it anymore, so I had to kick them both out. What do you think Isaac was dealing with internally regarding some of these situations? I'm going somewhere. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you're supposed to be the answer, but you can't even bear to hear the question anymore? What do you do when you are supposed to be the answer, but you can't bear to hear the question anymore? You know how old Isaac was when he got married? 40. He's 40 years old when he gets married. So for 40 years, he had heard, you're the promise, you're the promise, you're the promise. The descendants are going to be innumerable through you, through you, through you. Hold up, I'm 40, I don't have a wife. And then... I just don't understand why Moses wrote this the way that he did. Okay? I'm just going to be real honest. 
So they go to get a wife for Isaac, and this is what is written in Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 through 21. Now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nabahoth, then Kedar, Adbil, Mipsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadima. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns, their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. These were the years of, a li of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Ishmael. Twelve sons who have, they, they have authority over 12 cities. Isaac, you're the promise. You're the answer. Here's the genealogy of Ishmael. The very next verse, this is the genealogy of Isaac. Man, I feel the Holy Spirit in here so strong. I really hope y'all can hear what he's trying to say right now. This is the genealogy of Isaac. Very next verse, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Here's the genealogy of Ishmael. Twelve sons, authority over twelve nations, twelve settlements, twelve princes, and they list them in detail. This is the genealogy of Isaac. This is the first thing that they tell us about Isaac becoming the fulfillment of the promise. This is the genealogy of Isaac. As he's writing it, Isaac had no kids. Isaac was married to Rebekah who was barren. That was the history that you got of Isaac at first. That was the genealogy. Now, I, I love the, the, the semicolon that's there, and it says, after he prayed, she did conceive and have babies. But I want you to understand something, that there are times in your life where you know you're supposed to be the answer, but you don't even want to hear the question anymore. You know that you carry something on the inside of you that has the ability to switch atmospheres, to literally change nations, or in Isaac's case, to become the answer for a new nation. You have that on the inside of you, but you can't bear to hear the question anymore because what you see on the outside does not match what you're hearing on the inside. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to live by what Rebecca was talking about a while ago? Am I going to live by what I feel and what I see, or am I going to be able to be mature enough to really live by what I know that the Lord has spoken to me. Because sometimes I don't want to hear the question any longer, but I know that I'm the answer.
You remember when we started this months ago and, and Judas, not Iscariot, asked the Lord, why are you not revealing yourself to us? And he says, he says, loving me empowers you to obey my commandments. I'm going to come and live in you. In other words, he's telling Judas, you're going to be the answer. I'm going to give it to you. And Judas is saying, I don't even want to think about the question because you just took time telling us that you're leaving. And that's what Isaac had to deal with. This is the genealogy of Ishmael. I'm not daring trying to repeat those names again. <laughs> Twelve cities, authority. This is the genealogy of Isaac. His wife was barren. Why do we give the negative before we can ever see what's really coming? This story is messing with me. This was not the plan that Isaac had envisioned. Rebecca did conceive. God tells her this. He says, you have two nations in your womb, and the younger one would rule the older one. He's going to rule over the older one. He's going to, to absolutely just overtake the older one. This is the word of the Lord to Rebecca. It's, it's a really, really magnificent story. So I want you to see this real quick. Let's skip down to verse 24, Genesis 25. So when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. That's letting us know she had heard the word of the Lord. It's now come to pass. Okay, there's two nations in your womb. Are you, are you with me? Verse 25. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Can you tell that it was not a woman who wrote this? Can you tell that it was Moses, right? He was like a hairy garment. <laughs> uh, Thank you, ladies, who have patience with us men. Thank you so much. <laughs> so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 60 years old when she bore them. That's amazing. Verse 27, so the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man. Everybody say mild man. I'm going to show you, for, for, for those of you who, uh, well, we don't really have any of those in here. I was going to say those of you who uh, live and die by the KJV, and this is new KJV. I'm going to show you that that's actually a really, really poor translation, that he was a mild man. Um. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau was a hunter. We'd have been friends. Okay, watch this, watch this. Esau's a hairy garment, so they name him Esau. I didn't even look that up, but I guess it means hairy garment. How would you like that? Harry Garment, come over here. What you? It's time for dinner, Harry Garment. Okay. Jacob's name means supplanter, deceiver, one who grabs the heel, or I like this, one who rides on the heels of others, right? That's what we know about Jacob. He's a deceiver. He's a supplanter. Absolutely. He fits the bill. It's really interesting that this word here, though, in verse 27, used for mild... KJV says plain, but here's what it really means in Hebrew. Watch this. Complete, 
perfect. One who lacks nothing in physical strength, beauty, sound, wholesome, an ordinary, quiet sort of person, complete, morally innocent, having integrity, one who is morally and ethically pure. As a matter of fact, it's the very same word that was used for Job. It's the very same word that God was using for Job when he was speaking to the enemy who was coming to try and steer Job wrong. Okay, you follow me? His name is Jacob. He's a mild man. His name is deceiver. His name is supplanter. His name is heel grabber, but he's a mild man. He's perfect. He's complete. He's wholesome. He's ethically pure. Which one is it? Then God changes his name to Israel, the name expressing the concept of wrestling or clinging firmly to God and overcoming, and God's confirming his covenant with Jacob. It indicates that Israel is to be understood as Jacob's covenant name. What in the world, Ryan, are you talking about? What is the moral of your story? Here's what I want to tell you. She named him Jacob because he was grabbing his brother's heel. This is what I want to tell you today. Don't attempt to label something in immaturity that God has named for covenant fulfillment. Do not attempt to put a label on something because you're viewing it in an immature state when God has destined it to become a nation and to become something in covenant fulfillment that would ultimately be the name of a nation. Don't attempt to do it. Here's the issue. The reason we do that, the reason we label things in immaturity is because we get stuck there. I want to help us today. I want to help us. The reason that we label things in immaturity, the reason we pout, the reason we do all of these things that we talk about is because we are immature. How can you say that, Ryan? How can you say that you're immature? Listen, you know, I hear people talk about it all the time, the, the coming of the Lord, and I promise I'm not going to get eschatological on you today, but I want, I want you to hear this. I hear people talking about the coming of the Lord. Do you know that it says in First or Second Peter, I can't remember which, which one, but that we can hasten the day of the Lord? We can hasten the day of the Lord. Now, I know, I know that that's heresy to all of you who are waiting for, you know, the trumpet to blow any second, and, you know, we, we, we've come because of fear. And, and I, listen, let me just say, I absolutely believe in the rapture. I absolutely, 100% believe that Jesus is coming to take us away. I absolutely do not believe it's happening in 30 seconds. My goodness, brother. Nobody knows the day than the hour. I guarantee you, nobody knows the day than the hour. I got 88 reasons why dude in 88 was wrong too. For those of you that remember that book. Watch this. We can hasten the day of the Lord, right? What does that look like? Can I propose to you that that looks like maturity? How can you say that, Ryan? Because apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, the gifts that Jesus left to the church are to operate until we become the full stature of the measure of Christ. Until we grow into the perfect man or mature man. So in other words, we can hasten the day of the Lord by growing up. I can't get no help in this Presbyterian <laughs> church who's waiting for that trumpet to sound right now. That's what they're hoping right now. Jesus, I want you to come right now and prove him wrong right now in this moment. No, I'm just playing. I'm joking. <laughs> Maturity, according to Scripture, 
is what will happen when we become the full stature of the measure of Christ. It's in, the Bible, in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Is it right? And so what happens is in immaturity, we try to label things that God has plans for. And because we label them in immaturity, we write them off as necessary as we move forward into maturity. We'll write it off as unnecessary because we've already labeled it in a state of immaturity. And that's what Rebecca did. He's Jacob. He's a deceiver. He's a heel grabber. Later on, after he does a lot of the stuff, and I'm going to show you that he does. He really lives up to his name. He doesn't live up to mild man. He lives up to deceiver. Right? And, and in one instance... When he goes in and manipulates his father Isaac to get the blessing, Esau comes out and he said he was rightly named deceiver. He was rightly named a supplanter. And that was the definition that Jacob had his whole life because someone saw immaturity, in immaturity him grabbing the heel of another, even though she had the word of the Lord. Now, this is what's really interesting to me, that Jacob does all of this stupid junk that I'm getting ready to list in just a moment, knowing the word of the Lord. Who knew the word of the Lord? His mother. His mother, who aided in manipulation. Why would she do that? Do you know why she would do that? Because she watched her husband do the very same thing that his father did when he came to Abimelech, and he said, I want you to tell them that you're my sister. Remember we talked about it? And so he was willing to sacrifice the security of the bride. So now the bride learns in order to maintain her own security, I'm going to learn how to manipulate things to get what I want. Oh, Jesus, if you have ears to hear, hear. That the bride learns how to manipulate things because she doesn't feel secure in her identity as the bride because the ones who were over her who were supposed to just be friends of the bridegroom have now so sacrificed that security that she thinks she has to manipulate to make things happen. And so then she begins to not only manipulate and tell Jacob how to get the blessing on him. That's the issue I have with this, Rebecca. You know that he's supposed to rule over him. You don't have to manipulate to make that happen. But she does, and in immaturity, in immaturity, she calls her son something that he probably should have never been called the whole time. Now, real quick, let's talk about, this is what we know about Jacob. He was deceptive. He tricked Esau out of his birthright. His brother was hungry. I'll give you some soup. For your birthright. Now, first of all, let me say, Esau must have been nine kinds of dumb. You're a hunter, and you go get game, and that's what you do, and you are so hungry that you're going to give your whole life savings for a bowl of soup? Listen, I ain't never had a bowl of soup that good. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we can't, we can't, I, I mean, Jacob tricked him, but Esau was dumb, y'all. He was dumb. He was dumb. Dumb decisions. Immaturity. Okay. He tricked Esau out of his birthright. Number three, he manipulated his earthly father to bless him. What about this? Jacob played dumb. Do you really believe women? Women, help me out here. 
when Jacob goes and he asks for Rachel and Laban gives him Leah, please tell me how that brother did not know that he had Leah in that tent. Crazy-eyed Leah. She was. That's what about she. Her, her eye was all. You know what I'm saying? Here's the deal. It's true. It's what the Bible says that she had issues with her eye. Here, here, here's the thing. He was willing to get in bed with dysfunctional vision. He was willing to get in bed with dysfunctional vision. So he's manipulated. He's tricked. He's done all these things, and now he's willing to get in bed with dysfunctional vision and act like he didn't know it was Rachel. You made it up. <laughs> made it up. There's no way that he didn't know that that was right. That's either the darkest night in the history of the whole world. I don't even know. I'm just not familiar. So number four, he gets in bed with dysfunctional vision, Leah. Number five, when we see that he finally decides, you know what, I think maybe I ought to go back to Bethel. Maybe I ought to return. He has to go to his family that are serving idols. Jacob, the deceiver, the supplanter, the heel grabber. Mild man, perfect, complete, wholesome. Or Jacob, deceiver, supplanter, heel grabber. There's plenty in Scripture for us to attribute to Jacob's personality and the way that he functioned. This, uh, this past Monday, we were blessed to go to the governor's prayer breakfast in Lexington. And um, I just want to I, I tell you that all of the things that you see in the media and, and all of the uh, bashing of politicians and 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 everything that you can imagine. I just want to tell you that it, it, it ain't all like that. I'm telling you, for two hours, leadership in the state of Kentucky prayed and asked God to move over this state for two hours. It was the primary function of the breakfast. They let you get your food, and by about 7.15, they went into prayer. And one right after the other came and were praying over the thing. Somebody had texted Governor Bevan a scripture, and he read the scripture. And immediately I thought, I am going to buckle over and start just weeping in this, in this office because it struck me. As I began to think about what we talked about last week and what we talked about, what I knew the Lord was saying, I have such vivid memories of my father preaching from this scripture. I, I remember a phone call where, and I don't even remember if somebody else had preached it and he got that revelation or whatever, but I remember that he called me and he said, Ryan, I mean, I was a teenager, but we, we just did that every Sunday night because he wasn't with me. We would talk and, and he would tell me things and he, he gave me this scripture in Numbers 23 and I've, I've, I've preached from it several times, never really pulling out of it what I should. But the governor read this scripture and I looked at Rebecca and I looked away and 
tears begin to well up in my eyes. And it's the story of um, Balak who hires Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And he has four opportunities to curse the children of Israel. Moses was leading at this time. And he literally, I'm going to pay you to curse my enemies. And you know the story. He gets up and he can't curse them. And he, you know, he says things. I remember a story, a, a sermon that your dad preached when I was probably eight years old in Harlan County. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. He, I, listen, I was churchy, guys. I'm telling you, I just was. But I remember it. He stood there. You know how he does? You know how your dad does? He gets about like this right here and that finger comes out. Am I doing it right? <laughs> and he'll do this right here. Is there? And he said, you can't curse what God has blessed. And he preached a whole sermon around that, and I'll never forget. As a matter of fact, <laughs> when Ryan was getting ready to ask Dave if he could marry Jessica, do you remember that I told you? I said, listen, you need to, you need to remind him of that sermon that you can't, you know. <laughs> I did. I told him. So, so, so Balak pays Balaam to preach. Are y'all okay? I'm really enjoying this today. I don't know if y'all are or not, but I, I, like, I feel Holy Ghost up here so strong, and I know we're not running around, but I'm telling you he's here. So he, he gets Balaam, and he says, I want you to prophesy. And every time he opens his mouth, he, he blesses them, right? But I want you to read or see or listen to the language that he uses. Based upon what I just talked about of how good Jacob did at living down to the name that he was given. Numbers chapter 23 I'm going to start at verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and he will not, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not make good and fulfill it? Behold, I have received his command to bless Israel. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Listen to this. God has not observed wickedness in Jacob. Can you hear? Can you hear that? I just said everything that he did to live up to that. I just said everything that he did to try and ruin the plan of God in his life. And God Almighty, Yahweh, declares through the prophet years after Jacob would have already been dead, over generations, I have observed no wickedness in Jacob. I'm reading out of the Amplified Version, and it says this. God has not observed wickedness in, in Jacob, and in brackets it says, for he is forgiven. For he is forgiven. Come on, man. God has not observed wickedness in Jacob, for he is forgiven. Nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with Israel, and the shout of their king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have strength like a wild ox, for there is no enhancement or omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel, what has God done? Behold, a people rises up like a lioness and lifts up and lifts itself up like a lion. He will not lie down until he devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. 
Guys, I want you to hear this. I know that in our justice mentality over our history with the Lord, that we have read the Old Testament and we saw that the sentence is death every time. And we see, oh my goodness, how could God be good in the Old Testament? But I'm telling you, when he has a plan for your life, regardless of what people label you in immaturity, when it comes to fulfillment, he looks at you because of justification, because that Jesus really did pay for everything. He looks at you and he says, ah, can find no wickedness in Jacob. I can find no wickedness in you. I can find no omen against you. I cannot. And when the enemy comes in and attempts to pull you down, he says, I have a command to bless and it cannot be reversed. Four times. Four times, Balaam tries to curse the children of Israel. He goes to the high places. He gets away from everybody. Balak says, listen, Balak was smart. He said, I want you to come over here so you'll have a different perspective. I want you to see it from a different perspective. And every time he opened his mouth, he blessed the children of Israel and could not curse them. And every time in all four prophecies, at least once, he mentions Jacob. He mentions Jacob. What if... What if you really could be seed right now for generations to come that they could look at you and they could say, I never found any wickedness in Ricky Grogan. I never found, I never found any wickedness in West Star, in Daniel Cheney, in Charmaine, in Danica. I never found I never found anything but goodness. And the enemy tried to rip you away. Some of you have stories that would blow your mind if I gave them the mic. It would absolutely blow your mind if you knew what some of the people in this room have had to go through. But I'm telling you today, because of the blood of Jesus, because of generational blessing, he's looking at you today and he's saying it's done. And what was labeled an immaturity cannot go with you through the rest of your life. I can find no wickedness in them because you are forgiven. Come on, man. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. I know that society has tried to label you and say that you're this, but it was just immaturity. It was just a place of you learning and growing. It's not an excuse to stay there. You have to move. At some point, you got to return to your altar, just like we talked about last week, right? But you have to go there knowing that Jesus paid for everything. And you have to believe that he declares over you that there is No wickedness observed in Jacob. I love that wording. I have observed no wickedness in Jacob. What? You see everything. You see everything. You know everything that I just listed is true. Man, isn't that how we approach it? We look at people, and because we see their failure, and we don't understand exactly what God's doing in them, we may see them in immaturity, and we make our list, right? Here's our list. We see it right here, and it's as if the Lord just looks straight over and says, I have I've observed no wickedness in Jacob. I have observed no wickedness. Hold on. Hold on. I know what I did. I have observed no Wickedness in Jacob. For the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. As far as the east is from the west, 
That's how far he's removed our transgressions. I love, I love Psalm 103. I love that Jacob did his very best to mess it up, but he could not. Before he was born, God had given a word and said, you have two nations in your womb, and you, just because you mess up, Jacob, you don't get to stop being a nation. Just because you mess up, you don't get to stop being what he has called you to be from the very beginning. Some of you are here today and have survived only because of what he has put on you. I've observed no wickedness. I have observed no wickedness in Jacob. Listen, let me read this. Can I just read it over you? I'm going to read it out of the New King James, then I'm going to read it out of the Passion Translation. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. The Lord executes righteousness and his justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Come on, if you don't hear anything else that you believe is the gospel, listen to me today. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. We deserved it. We did it. But he stands ever strong and ever secure and says, I do not, I have not observed any wickedness. The Passion Translation, you are a God who makes things right, giving justice to the defenseless. You've unveiled to Moses your plans and showed Israel's sons what you could do. Lord, you're so kind and tenderhearted to those who don't deserve it and so patient with people who fail you. Your love is like a flooding river overflowing its banks with kindness. You don't look at us only to find our faults just so that you can hold a grudge against us. You may discipline us for our sins, but never as much as we really deserve, nor do you get, e- nor do you get even with us for what we've done. <sighs> Come on, man. That is the gospel. That is the gospel, that he has not dealt with us according to our sins. The gospel is not that you haven't sinned. You have. I have. We all have. There's only one who didn't. That was Jesus. The gospel is that he has not dealt with us according to our sins. I don't care what has been spoken over you. I don't care what you were labeled in immaturity. I'm telling you, you are here today not as a result of your sin. You're here today as a result of the kindness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And it is that kindness that leads us into repentance. And when we move into that, that is when he says, I have observed no wickedness. No wickedness. Listen, I know that that messes with us. I know that that messes with people who have a demand for justice and we have to live holy and we have to do that. And if you know me, you know that that's absolutely what I believe. You know that I believe that we have to live holy. But I'm going to tell you, holiness is not an outward expression. It's something that happens on the inside of you. I was not saved to holiness. I was saved to Jesus. And the byproduct of living in him is that I I don't strive, but I'm going toward holiness. There are some of you in here today. There are some of you in here today. I have personally prophesied over your babies. I wish you to just let him come. I wish you to just let him come on up here. I'll never forget it. I will never forget. I heard the Lord say, that boy is meant for the nations. 
Kozo is meant for the nations. There are many of you. There are many of you. You see me holding these babies and you think, oh, I'm just holding them. And they, they just love baby. No, 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 no. I'm holding them. Because I know. I know. I know what he has put on them. I know what he's doing. And I know that I long for them to live and grow up in a gospel where they believe not that God is out to get them or to get even with them for their judgments, but that they believe that there is no wickedness. There is no wickedness found. There is no wickedness found. There's no wickedness found. Listen, what time? I'm, I'm done. I feel this though really quick. I want to go after shame today. I want to go after shame. I believe that shame and guilt are the tools of the enemy. Shame for what we feel like we have to pay for and guilt for what we know we have done. I'm asking you today, I'm asking you to pay a price to get the perspective of the Father, which is not hard to do. It's so much easier to hear him say, I find no wickedness. I have observed no wickedness than it is to attempt to work and make something happen in your own power. I want to go after shame today. Really quick, we talked about this. We talked about this in the four corners, and so I'm not going to hit this long, but I just want to say this. First of all, I want to say things may have been, I, I want to go after shame today because there may be things that happened in immaturity that you feel like you're having to pay for, but I want, I want you to hear the word of the Lord today. He has a covenant name for you. He has a covenant name for you. <clears throat> what is shame? What is shame? Define, it's a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. It is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of a wrong or foolish behavior. All shame is, is the enemy trying to remind you that you messed up. Well, guess what, genius? That's what I want to tell the enemy. Guess what, genius? We all know that I messed up. But I have promises that he has observed no wickedness. I have promises. He wants to keep you bent over in shame. He wants to keep you bent over in shame. First John, first John chapter three, it says that if our heart doesn't condemn us, if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we have confidence in God. Come on. If we don't let our heart condemn us, we have confidence in God. Listen, shame and guilt is a tool that the enemy has been using for year after year. As a matter of fact, some of you in here today, you feel shame because of things that actually happened to you. Not that you did something, but something that happened to you that was wrong. And you feel the burden of shame because of that. What is it? Because I have a consciousness. I have in my mind, I can't get rid of the fact that I am aware of foolish behavior or wrong behavior. Some of you are dealing with shame because you did do it. And you're not allowing the full restoration of the blood of Jesus. 
to wash over you. And you deal with that past over and over and over. And you learn to put on a face and you learn to put on your smile and you learn to do all of these things but on the inside you're like I don't deserve it and then what happens relationships are sabotaged because you don't feel like you should be in a good relationship with anybody I'm just talking about friends I'm talking about friends I, I can't be friends with people because I have, I will sabotage the relationship because of shame because of guilt I can't I can't move forward and the enemy just keeps bombarding over and over and over with shame please hear this please hear me today I hear the Lord. I see him. I see him in love and kindness declaring, I have observed no wickedness. I have observed no wickedness in Jacob. It's not that we have to get God to forget what we did. It's that we have to allow ourselves to let Holy Spirit renew our minds But I want to tell you today, his blood and his Holy Spirit are stronger than even your conscience and your will. They really are. I can't fully believe that God is good if I'm still driven by a justice consciousness. I can't fully believe that he's good if I don't believe that he has the ability to completely eradicate my past and declare over me that he has observed no wickedness. And I can't believe that God is good fully if I stay labeled by things that happened in immaturity. See, here's the redemption. Before Israel was a nation, Israel was a man. But we don't say today, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. We say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he may have the name, but he doesn't have the behavior any longer. And notice that before Balaam could prophesy over Israel, he had to prophesy over the one who was responsible for Israel. Guys, I'm just telling you, he's better than what you believe. He is better than what I believe. He is wrecking me day after day with the idea that he is so much better than what I've ever believed. Not only has he not observed any wickedness, but the shout of a king is among them. That right there is when dad would tear it up. 
I'm talking about the leg would come, everything. The shout of a king is among them. I don't even know what to do. We probably should pray or something. Back in the day, like in my notes, I would put closing, and then I would type it out how I wanted it to go. Come up with some pretty good stuff back then. I don't have a whole lot right now. I do want to pray for those of you today who have been bound by shame and guilt. And listen, as soon as I say that, pride wants to whisper in your ear and say, you can't respond to that. What will they think? What will they think if you've got shame? Oh, my goodness. People will start, they'll start thinking, oh, what did did they do? Did they do this? Did they do that? that?" Guess what? I just spent 20 minutes talking about immaturity, and if that's where people want to stay, so be it. But if you want freedom today, I'm telling you, He's here. He's here. I'm talking about freedom from crushing mistakes that we've made. Where shame bombards our minds every day. I'm telling you, telling you, there's freedom. There's freedom. And you can hear the voice of the Lord declaring over you, I've observed no wickedness. I don't care what the rap sheet says. I don't care what list the family has kept. The one that matters is standing today, not in a judge's robe, but in a father's robe, and saying, I've observed no wickedness. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, And you say, shame. Every time I say it, I just want to start singing, ain't no grave. Shame is a prison. With a smooth and velvet tongue. You say, Ryan, I really want freedom. I really... I really want to move into a greater level of intimacy. Please understand that shame will absolutely hinder intimacy. You may have been serving God all your life. This is not saying you're not. It's not saying that you're not on your way to heaven. This is me saying that there's more. There's more that he has kept you for a purpose and a reason. Protected you to bring you to these moments. Where shame can no longer be an issue. I want to join with you in agreement today. 
that shame is done, that it no longer has a voice in your life. And I want you to hear the voice of the Father declaring in the face of a written record. Isn't that amazing? All he had to do was look back at what Moses had written and see that Jacob had messed up over and over and over again. But you know what he chose to do? He chose to do what's in Colossians. And that is nail the handwriting of ordinances that was against me to the tree and to make a public spectacle of the enemy. So if you're here today and you say, yeah, yeah, I just want to partner with you. I'm going to ask you, let's all stand. Let's all stand. And if that's you, I want you to come down here. I want to lay my hands on you and partner with you that shame would never have a voice in your life again. Come on, let's move right now. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast from Awakening Church. You can find us online at awakeningky.com.